Joe here with the latest viral podcast from the news team at Jack. So much hitting the headlines this week, but the biggest story we brought you had to be the exam's chaos. BTEC results were pushed back just hours before they were due out. The exam board said it needed more time to recalculate them. Plus, there was that big U-turn on A-level and GCSE grades, which prompted a new rush for university places. Both Oxford Uni and Oxford Brooks told us they were facing constraints on their capacity. So let's hear first from Vice Principal of Abingdon and Whitney College, Jenny Craig, who told me it's been an incredibly difficult time for students. Certainly from talking to our students, they feel more reassured that the results that they now will receive um, are more of a reflection on the work that they've they've done over the last year and over the last two years, rather than um, being completely taken out of their hands and determined by an algorithm. Um, so whilst you know none of these uh, solutions are absolutely perfect, I think what it does mean is that individual students are more likely to get the results um, that they deserve and that more accurately represent the, the work and effort that they've put in over the last few years which must make them feel a lot more relaxed and kind of confident about whichever step they're taking next because obviously they were relying on grades, some of them, weren't they, for going on to further education or into apprenticeships and that sort of thing? Absolutely. Um, So they can be reassured that, you know, whatever the result, there is absolutely a positive next step for them. And even if the results that they have achieved aren't quite what they're hoping for, um, my advice to them would be, uh, please don't panic. There is definitely the right course for you. And the most important thing is to ensure that you find that right course. I think often it's far too easy just to concentrate on GCSEs, A-levels, and then going off to university. Um, There are lots of different paths to get to the same destination and lots of different uh, subject areas and levels offered by particularly further education colleges. Our mantra is very much right student, right course. And we have an army of support staff on hand to discuss different options and next steps. Um, We've got a virtual drop-in day, which you can find just on our website. Do you feel for the students this year, obviously, with everything that went on with the pandemic itself and how that disrupted their studies, to then have this disruption over the last week or two with sort of back and forth changes to how exams are graded? It's been a really tough time for them, hasn't it? It's been a really tough time for for students and and young people generally. Um, And and I think it's that uncertainty that that makes it even more difficult. Um, So we know that there are lots of young people out there who haven't been um, accessing formal learning um, for quite a few months. Um, So actually, even additional uncertainty has just just added to that. We certainly didn't close over the lockdown period. We were open all the way throughout for our vulnerable students. Um, And all of our learning uh, and all of our lessons went online uh, within about two days' notice. Um, so so we, we really wanted to make sure that our students, even though they weren't able to be on campus, were really well connected uh, with us, their classmates, their teachers, so that they could continue to engage in learning and that they could continue to, to be supported, have that structure to their, their daily lives, which is really important for them. And for those students that you mentioned briefly earlier that were expecting to get their BTEC results and last minute found out that they're not, what happens there? What next for those students? I imagine it's been really tough this morning to have to kind of deal with those calls from people. 
So it was quite a last-minute decision. I mean, I think it's it's right that Pearson, the awarding body for BTECs, is taking another look at those BTEC results just to make sure that no students are disadvantaged. Um, what we've done is we've taken the decision to confirm our progressing students' places based on the draft level two BTEC grades that, that we saw yesterday. Um, we know that those grades won't be downgraded as a result of the, the review. We want to make sure that we can give our students as much certainty as possible so that where those draft BTEC grades coupled with the GCSE results today indicate that those progressing students would have achieved their offer conditions, we will confirm that offer and progress their enrollment with us. Where the draft BTEC results indicate that perhaps those offer conditions might have just been missed. We'll wait until the official results and then confirm next steps with the students. So even though we can't give the individual results, we want to, to give a bit more certainty to students and make sure that they can really take advantage of that next step and feel really positive about uh, the future for them. Aside from all things exams, we're going to look at a story we covered this week about child-on-parent violence. Now, it's not something that gets a lot of attention often, but it is something that has been getting worse in lockdown. Rachel Condry is a professor of criminology at Oxford Union, says there's been a rise of around 70% in incidents. She told me more about what some parents were going through during the pandemic. One of the things that parents talked about was the real difficulty of, um, of being cooped up and experiencing those restrictions. Um, and uh, one parent, for example, talked about a cabin fever effect and another a pressure cooker environment um, in what was already a volatile household. Um, and they talked about the um, real difficulties of losing informal support. Sometimes grandparents or other relatives might have been there um, to help out and support. Um, also losing the formal support and the support of services. Um, but also young people being anxious and worried, the fear that um, was around, uh, around the virus, um, anxieties about that. Um, schools being closed, uh, pressures around attempting to homeschool at home. So it was really a, a kind of whole combination of factors that led to this being a particularly difficult time. Because of lockdown and, like you say, all the issues with with services sort of disappearing for a while or going virtual, a lot of parents then didn't come forward, didn't report the violence. It must be really tough, not only because of lockdown, but because of the fear of getting their children in trouble, I suppose, or potentially in trouble with the police. Yes, and um, I think what we found when we looked, we sent freedom of information requests to all the police forces, um, and we found a really quite mixed picture. Some police forces had seen an increase in reported cases during lockdown, but some hadn't. And uh, we think this is because of parents' really serious concerns about reporting their child. So parents always talk about the real difficulty of reporting their own child for violence in the home and their serious concerns about that child being criminalised and what might happen if they report their child to the police. Um, but this increased even more at, at the time when, um, at, the, at the peak time of uh, coronavirus and of lockdown. And you can you can probably remember back to what accident and emergency rooms looked like at that time, waiting rooms that were very empty because people just weren't take going out and weren't using services. And we think the same was happening to many families when they were deciding whether to call the police and, and parents 
um, talked to us and told us about being really concerned about exposing their child to an increased risk of coronavirus. And one even described calling the police as being like a death sentence to your child. They were really concerned about them being spending time in a police station and so on. Um, and I think also just a, a concern about calling the police when people's time were taken up so much with managing the, the consequences of the early stages of lockdown. And if there is a second wave of coronavirus and we do have to re-enter lockdown, what do you think needs to happen in future for sort of parents who have experienced child-on-parent violence to make sure they're supported? Well, I think resources are incredibly important um, and also uh, planning and strategic planning. So resources at both local authority level and from government um, and a much more strategic approach to this um, and an understanding of what these families go through. Um, Obviously, lockdown happened last time very, very quickly and there wasn't really very much time to plan, but practitioners told us about having to be really creative in thinking of ways to support families um, and having to do that often with really minimal resources and sometimes not having IT equipment themselves to do it, sometimes families not having that equipment and really lacking in um, kind of guidance and advice about how to go about that. So we'd hope uh, that there'll be more planning and more planning for the specific needs of these families and resourcing for the support that they need if we go into either a local or national lockdown again. Manchester Uni was also involved in that research and you can read more about it on our news pages. Over now to George Street in Oxford. Well, not literally, but we are going to hear from some of the restaurants and cafes on what they think of the street being shut to cars from this weekend. It's so that they can serve people outside in a more socially distanced way. Now, a load of businesses are taking advantage and that includes Franco Manca. Steve Smith from there reckons outdoor dining will become more of a thing in future as we emerge from Covid. We've obviously bathed in a really strong summer which has been which has been great for everybody eating outside is, is obviously a very positive thing and and it looks seems to be that being outside is, is much is much better in terms of sort of social distancing or what have you so it definitely yeah that, this is coming as great news to us you know a lot of our pizzerias already have outside dining areas but we do have a handful that don't so this has come as great news and we're really looking forward to getting involved would you like to see it as more of a long-term thing then that people can enjoy all year round if the weather's good enough I'd love to, yeah, of course. I mean, alfresco dining, I think, is going to be, you know, weather dependent in the UK, I suppose, but it's also going to massively going to become a thing of the future as we as we as we move forward from this. And I think that would be that would certainly be welcomed, yeah. And Franco Manca has been doing eat out to help out as well, hasn't it? Yeah, we've been doing it in all our pizzerias. It's been an absolutely huge success for us. We've had sales in excess of 130 percent up last year. Um, For me personally, I feel like I'm eating out more than ever in August because I want to take advantage of all of the deals. And for you guys, I'm guessing pizza's going to be a few quid with that offer on. Literally, I mean, you can get a margarita in in Franco Manca on the eat-out to help out for £3.40. So I think in terms of our price point, it's really benefited us. And we've really felt a really strong benefit over over that period. And actually, although although sales latter latter part of the week, we expected to be to be massively reduced, but t- typically they're not, and and it's it's been a, it's been a huge a huge help as well as the furlough scheme for our for our business. Oh, good. So you think even though this is just Monday to Wednesday and it's just August, do you think it will have a knock-on effect into sort of September in the coming months? I hope so. Yeah, I you know we're in a very 
un- uncertain times and countrywide, I suppose. But equally, you know, we're very, very much uh, hoping that that will be the case, and, and the signs from this are very positive for us. One thing that we have introduced, which has been great, has been our virtual queue system. So, if you're within 500 metres of any of our pizzerias and you visit the website, you can then join our virtual queue, or you can scan a QR code on the door, which then reduces the amount of people waiting around outside the restaurant as well, and increases the social distancing on the street. And you'll then get a message on your phone to let you know when your table is ready, and that will invite you through to the table. So it captures your track and trace details as well. I also spoke to Leah Villacorta, who is the general manager of the Oxford Brunch Bar. Now, that only opened on George Street a couple of weeks ago. When we opened, we weren't expecting to have, of course, we weren't expecting to meet our sales projections or anything like that. But we've been really pleasantly surprised that every day has been a little bit busier than the last. And so far, people seem to be very happy. You maybe haven't sort of got the months and years behind you, I suppose, to compare to. But how do you feel about being able to trade more outside and serve people sort of in the street? Well, we've been really, really happy about that because, of course, with COVID-19 and with the state of everything at the moment, we've had a reduced capacity. So the idea of being able to expand a little bit more and to accommodate more customers, we've been very, very excited about. Um, What's it like generally opening up as a business at this time when lots of other businesses like yours are maybe really struggling and some having to close? Well, it's been very difficult because as much as the government guidelines are clear in some respects, every business, like you say, is individual. So to know how to best apply it and how we can keep our customers and our team safe, that takes a little bit of um, navigating, shall we say. So I think with all of the precautions that have been taken and as lockdown opened, the impact of obviously freezing the economy for three months really, really is evident. Having the support of the government and having... Of course, the support of customers makes a huge difference with small businesses. From Saturday then, what exactly are you offering in terms of outdoor seating? How many people can you accommodate? So we will have 10 tables on Saturday, um, each table with two to four seats. And that's a nice big number for us. So we will have the big umbrellas, of course, to try and cover for the rain. We were looking at getting either a gazebo or a tent, but of course that depends on the weather forecast. In England, it changes so often that you never know. We never know what to expect. Because we see similar, don't we, in you know maybe European countries abroad when we go on holiday or even in London. So how do you think Oxford will take it? I think Oxford will really like the pedestrianisation. I think we saw on St Michael Street that it was very successful. It gives a really nice um, atmosphere. And hopefully by increasing the footfall a little bit, it doesn't only impact cafes, but hopefully when the theatre opens, that'll make a difference. Absolutely. And I think it is just a trial at the moment. But if all goes well, would you like to see it more of a a permanent thing? Definitely. We were hoping that, of course, if everything goes well, next summer will be the same thing, but hopefully for a slightly longer period of time. We were so happy when the idea was presented. It was sunny. We were during the heat wave. And then unfortunately, this week and last week, it took a little bit of a turn. But I think we're still optimistic and we're still happy that it's going ahead. Loads more places getting in on the outdoor dining action. You've got Ask Italian, Bella Italia, Black Sheep Coffee, Chosen Noodle, Gourmet Burger Kitchen, O'Neill's, The Grapes, Wigan Pen, plus more joining in as they go. All we need now is the summer to last a few more weeks, don't we? Anyway, on to Oxford United, which is taking a popular social club online to help tackle loneliness whilst fans aren't allowed to go and enjoy the game in real life. The Department for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport has given English Football League trusts more than £800,000 to support some of the initiatives that they're running to help with isolation. Alex Blaine is from the charity Oxford United in the Community and told Alex from News more about it. 
the initiative um, that we've we've taken on board is um, tackling loneliness together project. Um, we were lucky enough to uh, receive funding through the DCMS and EFL Trust um, to actually take this project on board, and um, it was really just to tackle the uh, loneliness and that the, across Oxfordshire with a lot of areas that perhaps um, you know almost get might get overlooked, and uh, we just found it was a great opportunity as community part of Oxford United um, to get out there and use the power of football to go out and uh, actually play our part in trying to tackle that loneliness. Yeah, I know a lot of a lot, especially recently in the last couple of seasons with the mental awareness campaign in the FA Cup and, and across comp- cup competitions, um, how crucial a lifeline is football for some people in terms of their mental health and also how much worry do you have for people given that that's been sort of taken away during this uh, obviously with fans not being allowed into grounds no it's it's vitally important it's it's as i've mentioned it's an easy thing to be overlooked and um i think it's so vital in terms of especially the role like football and and just sport in general plays um within people's lives whether that's going being able to get along socialize and it's, it's so much more than just the game it's that social aspect People may not have been able to see friends and meet up with old people over the last few months. So, and having that taken away, we've just been hoping that you know we might actually be able to give a small part back now with the with the project um, that we're going to be doing over the next few months, which will hopefully start to give someone a little bit of feeling of normality coming back again. Talk me through it, the nuts and bolts. I mean, I understand that before COVID nineteen, you guys were running the Manor Club. What's it going to look like now? You've got this funding. So just obviously for anyone that doesn't know, so the Manor Club um, that's been running um, over the last few years, uh, last one was back sort of earlier on in the year uh, before COVID. And um, obviously normally that's in, in the room or 60 people at the Cowley Workers Social Club um, have lunch and then there'll be like a past player or current player or member of staff um, will be interviewed. Uh, now, obviously, we, we know that probably for the rest of this year, we won't actually be able to get everyone back into a room because of COVID restrictions. So for ourselves, uh, we're actually taking it onto a digital platform and it's going to be called Manor Club Extra. Um, so it's certainly not replacing what the Manor Club um, already does, um, which is fantastic. Um, this is going to be an extra, almost like a bolt-on. So uh, uh, Manor Club Extra, we're going to go digitally, uh, hopefully broadcast it through our uh, YouTube channel, community YouTube channel, and that show will consist of um, interviews like with past players, um, members of staff, um, as well as that, we're going a little bit further in expanding the show out. We've actually got some exciting links with a couple of partners that will come on board with us, which is uh, HUK Oxfordshire and Active Oxfordshire. Um, we really wanted to get involved with this project um, when we spoke to them, and um, they'll actually be doing a part within the show, which will be an active um, active section, and it will be like age-appropriate exercises and everything. So we'll actually get people moving around as well. So not only will they get the chance to, you know, listen to these interviews and everything, they'll actually have a chance to be sort of interactive within the show, which is which will be fantastic. And we're really pleased to have uh, both those partners on board with us. From football to cricket, as lockdown was a difficult time, of course, for cricket clubs in Oxfordshire, but they've adapted during the pandemic and are glad to be up and running again. Ashley Rump is the Participation and Growth Manager for Oxfordshire Cricket and spoke to our reporter, Emma. 
about how things are looking now. What clubs actually found was there was quite an influx of people who were very keen to get out and make the most of what was left of the summer and of the of the cricket season. Um, quite a few clubs now are finding that they've got more players available at this time of year, given that it's usually school holidays and families away on, on holiday than they ever have in, during, during August time. So at the start, it hit it quite hard, um, but clubs worked, survived, um, adapted and came through the came through the, the tough times and actually seemed to be seeing some rewards and benefits from it and playing a big part in their local communities actually and helping with the, the kind of the recovery locally of uh, the, the, the social element as much as the, the physical and well-being element as well. How do you maintain things like social distancing? What measures have clubs put in place? Strict hand hygiene does refer to things such as um, the ball only being touched by minimal players, i.e. the wicketkeeper and the bowler. Umpires are not allowed to, to touch the ball. Um, there are sanitisation breaks within games. So every six overs or 20 minutes, everybody stops, sanitises their hands and sanitises the ball as well. So there's a number of different measures that are being put in, put in place. Um, club pavilions aren't allowed to be used. And then when it comes to spectators watching, the players would stay within their own 30 bubbles, so a group of 30 that they would stay within, socially distanced within that, and the spectators would be at a different part of the ground or a different side of the ground, again, socially distanced. How do you feel then about cricket getting back to it? I think it's a, a, a massive step for our, our game. We had a, an amazing summer last year in terms of the World Cup and the drama of the, of the Ashes, and to miss a complete summer and lose that momentum would have been would have been really quite bad bad for cricket locally. Um, the juniors and the, the children would have wanted to get involved, and obviously also the adults as well that would have found something else to to go and do if we hadn't have been able to get back out and, and play. Slightly off topic here, but. We've seen in the news about uh, like football players hitting the headlines for breaking coronavirus measures. I just wondered yeah. what your thoughts are on sports men and women being in the public eye and adhering to these rules. There's a lot of guidance in place, a lot of information in place, and it's something that we're dealing with that no one has ever seen before. I believe that you can follow those guidelines to the best of your ability. There are some that in certain situations it just isn't possible but it all comes down to common sense and taking personal responsibility so everyone knows what the ECB guidelines are for recreational cricket everyone has read them everyone signs up to them it's then down to taking your personal responsibility for if you have symptoms you do not turn up you do not play etc um, and, and using common sense where some of the guidelines might not be possible at certain points. So the, the big one we've, we've had is in, in junior cricket. Uh, in the guidelines, it says equipment should not be shed or must not be shed where possible. Um, but in junior cricket, not all 11-year-olds, for example, have a helmet or have a set of gloves or have a set of pads, etc. So they do need to be shared. But what are the steps that can be taken to mitigate the risk of the virus transmitting? So where a set of pads are shared, they are cleaned down. For me, in the first option of cricket, it does, a lot of it comes down to, to common sense, following the guidelines as close as you possibly can. And now you're going to hear from the managing director of a soft play business who questioned whether the industry will survive with limits on numbers as it emerges from lockdown. 
Party Man Soft Play at the Ozone Leisure Park in Oxford. Welcome back families for the first time this week with, of course, a reduced capacity. James Sinclair is the managing director and magic maker. Historically, for the last, I don't know, 30 years of soft play, you would uh, just wake up, rock up, in you go, pay your admission and have a day out. But now you have to pre-book in advance uh, because of track and trace, so we know exactly who's in the building. Um, and I think for customers, the, the huge win for them is going to be the hugely reduced numbers. Ledger businesses work on a capacity basis and on 100% capacity, you'd make all your money in the last 20% of your turnover. But you're going to be going into a place now where there might have been 350 people in the building at any one time. That's now rocketed down to 100 people in the building at any one time. And in our site in Oxford, which is a 16,000 square foot building, that, that will be the huge difference that customers will notice the, 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 the completely least, the less capacity. Obviously, um, for our industry and for hotels, restaurants, um, other leisure sectors, it's whether they can survive like that. Do you think people are excited to be coming back to you or do you think there is a bit of nervousness still? I think there's two camps. I think 80% of people are excited. We're seeing good um, advanced bookings. Um, we've got a good few people coming in, but I think there are some people nervous. But I think as they see other people going out and doing things, that that's good. You know, and, and kids, I mean, I've got three and a half year old. He's, he had all these months off nursery, and, you know, I think kids are desperate to play with other kids and be kids, you know, and, and that's what we want to offer our customers. And how desperate do you think parents are as well to have something to do with the kids that's not at home? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking as a parent here, not as a person from Party Man World. Um, absolutely is the answer to that one. You mentioned, obviously, whether, you know, because of capacity issues, whether the sort of soft play centres can survive. How has your business coped, I suppose, with, with the long lockdown period and being one of the last kind of industries to be able to reopen? Yeah, I, I think well, we, we technically was the last. Um, even nightclubs weren't allowed to open, but if they adapted their business to not do dancing and stuff and turn themselves into a bar, they were allowed to open. So we was the last. Um, it's been very scary. I mean, we've lost millions of pounds as a business um, whilst we're being closed. And, you know, we've got 450 staff and a big chunk of those were put on furlough. But luckily for us, um, we're a diversified business. We do have farm parks. We do have day nurseries. We also make teddy bears, teddy tastic. And those businesses have been able to trade to some degree. So th those businesses have been supporting our indoor play business. Um, however, it, a very sad colleagues of ours in other not, not our business, but other colleagues um, in, in terms of colleagues within our industry have sadly um, not been able to make it and have closed the doors. I, I, yesterday, I knew of seven play centres around the country that um, closed their doors and not opened again, and they are just some of many. So we're opening for two hours, closing for an hour, opening for two hours, closing for an hour, opening for two hours. And in between those two-hour sessions, the centre's having a full hour's deep clean, um, which has never happened before. So a huge amount of uh, safety procedures put in place. In fact, my personal opinion is soft play is going to be now um, one of the cleanest places you can go to. They don't do that in restaurants where they're like, right, everyone out, let's close for an hour, sanitise. That's what we're doing in indoor play. Um, so we're making it super safe for customers. I'm sure lots of parents would be really happy about that because I know from sort of going along with my niece, you get all sorts of stuff, you know, dribble and everything sort of over soft play areas, yeah. don't you? This is a full fogging. I don't know if you've seen these fogging machines that they sanitise and you just like, they, they sort of blast the air with this mist. 
um, and then just sanitises everything. So, yeah, we're doing that after each session so that we're tracking and tracing exactly who's in in each two-hour session, hour close down, next two-hour session. We know who's in there, properly sanitised. You'll be asked to wear masks on entry and um, uh, and hand sanitised uh, on entry. Um, and then once you're in and you're sitting down, you can take the mask off um, it's because lots of people have teas and coffees and stuff. And uh, kids have a good day out and um, everything's nice and clean. So soft play centres were given the go-ahead to open last weekend, along with things like bowling alleys and casinos. Right now, it's been a pretty soggy week, hasn't it? So let's all cross our fingers for a bit of sunshine this weekend and hope that Storm Ellen doesn't do too much damage. Don't fancy getting my hair messed up when I step outside the door. Stay safe out there, everyone.